This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Rianne from Stories of Win, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Donna Kalou. Uh, she is an associate professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. And her lab studies different brain systems that drive individual differences and in reward learning and motivation that predict addiction vulnerability. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm excited to kind of hear your story. Thanks so much for the invitation, Rianne. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so we usually like to kind of begin by, um, you know, hearing what first got you interested in research and neuroscience and kind of at what um, stage of maybe either your um, education or just in your life, you kind of became interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the child of two special education teachers. And I think I first became interested in psychology, not knowing it was psychology by listening to my parents' stories about their days. Mm -hmm. And it was really fascinating to me to hear about how um, kids who are challenged in the classroom um, have problems that I wasn't seeing in my own life. And so it was just really interesting to hear those stories. And I would say that's how my interest in psychology started. And I had the early opportunity to be a substitute teacher in some special education classrooms Wow. late in high school uh, and early college. And I was placed for a summer in a classroom where it was mostly high-functioning children diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. And I was trained to become a discrete trial trainer, which is a really interesting process in tapping into the brain's basic learning mechanisms to yeah. help these children uh, acquire information and whatever level they were functioning. And so that was actually my my first foray into actual psychology again not realizing that it was based on psychological principles and mm -hmm. um meanwhile i was in in college and i was pre-med i thought i wanted to be an orthopedic physician that was what my interests were at the time so I was taking pre-med courses and basic biology courses things like this while I was doing this discrete trial training down where I was a, a college student in College Park, Maryland. And it was a really interesting process to be a part of that training, but also to see how these individuals with social deficits were behaving and um, the various different symptoms that they had. And it was just so interesting how diverse the symptoms presented and I became very interested in, in autism research. Um, and that was sort of how I learned about research in mm -hmm. a sense was through teaching. We kept a lot of data uh, mm -hmm. as we were using this discrete trial training procedure. And I actually never took a psychology course in undergrad. So it was all on the ground training in psychology. And it never really made the link with this is something I'm interested in. But I did learn that research was something I would really like to do because we were keeping a lot of data as we were working with these children. And it was difficult emotionally to work with the children and their families yeah. because they would progress and then they would regress. And I didn't really have the ability to 
to continue as a teacher as much as yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, it was it took an emotional toll. And I thought, well, how could I help these kids? Well, maybe research is the answer. Maybe that um, learning about what's going on in the brain could help me help these families in a way that, that I'm capable of doing. So I would say that was my an original interest. And so I decided I wanted to apply to grad school to study autism. And I, as I interviewed, a world of psychology and neuroscience opened up to me. And so <laughs> it, I don't study autism now, as you know. <laughs> and um, that's because I think I wasn't really aware of what neuroscience research was uh, going into graduate school. I think this is really rare nowadays, but back then, you know, I just sort of had a general interest in the brain mm -hmm. and it came from working with children and hearing about stories um, of individuals who don't learn normally. And I do study learning and I yeah. do study motivation and I do study basic psychological principles that drive behavior. So I would say that was really foundational in my interest in the brain. And it took me a little while circuitously to get to the point of where I am now studying the processes that we're interested in. Yeah, that makes sense. So how did you kind of, um, you know, you went from Berkeley interacting with individuals that kind of right need, um, need these kind of either behavioral interventions or potentially other types of maybe um, one day pharmacological interventions and stuff like that to help. And so in terms of you being able to want to help those kinds of populations, um, you saw research as an avenue for you. And so how did you kind of decide what kind of programs to apply for? Or once you then pivoted from right no longer staying within this field of studying autism, um, how did you kind of get interested? Was it through just being in general kind of fascinated with principles of learning and seeing your connection from that when you saw a particular lab you found fitting for you? Or how did that kind of jump kind of happen? Yeah, yeah I didn't really know how to apply for grad school. I think it's really different now. There's a lot more direct advertising to students. There's a lot better ways of reaching them. I don't want to date myself, but back in the <laughs> old days, it wasn't so easy to find neuroscience programs. I thought I wanted to stay pretty local. I was went to college in Maryland, and so I applied to University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, and I applied to a number of other places across the country, places I thought I would want to live, mm -hmm. and that had really great neuroscience programs, and that was sort of how I went about it. I didn't look really carefully at what people do because I felt so focused on what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but as soon as I interviewed with my PhD mentor, Jeffrey Schoenbaum, who at the time was at University of Maryland School of Medicine, it was like I said, the, the world of psychology and neuroscience just opened up to me. And it started with a hook at, at the time a lot of people were using a sort of language of uh, drugs of abuse hijack the brain's natural <laughs> reward system and learning mechanisms. And I was fascinated. It, mm -hmm. This was something I had not even considered. And having come from a family that struggled many you know, across generations with addiction, I just instantly, a, a light went on. And 
it was only through rotating in, in that lab, in Jeff's lab, and learning about very basic psychology for the first time. Psychology 101 principles for the first time as a graduate student that I realized my love of learning and dysregulated learning and motivation was so important for understanding the addiction process. Mm -hmm. And so that is, it was a flash bulb moment. And once I rotated there and the culture of the lab was great, it was a junior faculty member at the time and was just the lab sort of building up a research program. It was so exciting to be a part of that. And in a great department, I, I just, I fell in love with the environment. I really was invigorated with what we were doing um, throughout my graduate career. And of course there are times when everyone imagines they're gonna leave and, yeah, and yeah. it's just a phase and things like this. <laughs> but all in all, I think being in such a supportive environment, pursuing questions we were really interested in, in pursuing with cutting edge techniques was just totally what made it for me and how I found my way to the field that I'm currently in. Yeah, that's great. So what did um, your dissertation focus on um, in the Schoenbaum lab? So we used an approach in vivo recording and awake behaving rats. And we were really interested in understanding mechanisms of prediction error signaling in the brain. So because it was a rotations-based program, I rotated in a couple of their labs after leaving Jeff's lab. And one of them was at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center with Greg Elmer. And we were talking one day about the reward system. It's such a story. It shows the naivete I had as a graduate student. It's, but it was such a pivotal moment where he was telling me about the activity of dopamine neurons firing in the brain where you sort of have a baseline level of activity as these neurons are chugging along. All of a sudden, an unexpected drop of juice comes. Whee! They go up. <laughs> They're chugging along. And if cues in the environment become predictive of that reward and it's omitted, it goes down. And it blew my mind. I couldn't believe there was a system like this in the brain. And having come from Jeff's lab, I was so excited to try and record those neurons. Cool. And I went back to Jeff and I said, this is what I wanted to do. And he said, well, that's so difficult to do. Not many <laughs> labs do that in rats. There's a lot of monkey literature. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of explain the problem to me. And I didn't want to do it anyway. Wow. <laughs> uh, I had another rotation <laughs> cool. to do. I had another rotation to do. So I actually spent some time over at the National Institute on Drug Abuse wow. with Dr. Yuvin Shaham. Uh -huh. And learned rodent self-administration, which is a technique that I brought back to Jeff's lab. And then I was like, okay, well, now I want to expose animals to cocaine mm. and see how that changes prediction error signaling. He's like, oh, it's already a very difficult project. So uh -huh. I had fair warning how difficult it would be. I also had beginner's luck in recording dopamine neurons in normal rats, right? Rats not exposed to any drugs of abuse. We observe reward prediction error signaling. We, we observe some really interesting and exciting findings about how these neurons fire. 
when animals have a choice to make. And it was a, an exciting project to be a part of. It was um, led by Matt Resch, who's now at College Park, you may know. And it was exciting. He was a postdoc at the time, and he was a great collaborator. And we were really excited to be able to record these neurons. And so I set out to do my research, my thesis project, and I trained rats to self-administer cocaine or saline and tried to record these dopamine neurons again, and it just didn't work. <laughs> we weren't getting reliably very good activity from these neurons in awake behaving rats. And it was a challenge for a little while. I think every graduate student has this time where things aren't working and yes. what are you going to do? <laughs> well, we're going to use the same task. We're going to record from other areas that are important for processing these sorts of error signals. So being in Jeff's lab and being really interested in the amygdala, we recorded from two different amygdala nuclei, basolateral amygdala and central amygdala, in this task where we violated rats' rewards, reward expectations. Mm -hmm. And we observed these unidirectional signals that increased in response to unexpected reward delivery or omission. This is very different than those dopamine neurons that increase and decrease biphasic signaling mm -hmm. in reward prediction error. And that was really exciting because it mapped onto the predictions of a theoretical model for attention, for learning, in which essentially it uses the absolute value of these error signals and drives activity when animals need to attend to the environment to learn for the purpose of learning, to mm -hmm. learn about what stimuli are predictive of different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so that was what my thesis was about, was recording from these three nuclei. And I really en enjoyed doing the in vivo recording. And at the end of it, I thought I wanted a break from it, that I wanted to leave the bench. Mm -hmm. And I loved writing my thesis. It was something that's a phase I'll always remember during Snowmageddon, dating <laughs> <laughs> myself a little bit, back-to-back -back blizzards. I wrote my thesis and I really enjoyed that process and I felt rewarded by that process throughout my career. And so that stuck with me as I was exploring what other options I had and how I wanted my career to look. Um, and, and, and that was really my, my graduate career in a nutshell, mm -hmm. really positive environment to be working in excellent mentoring, you know, mentor-mentee dynamics and uh, a lot of mentors, actually. Every one of my colleagues felt like a mentor to me. And so I was able to grow a lot in that time. That sounds nice. How did you kind of, you know, decide from, you know, you said you were kind of exploring options of what to do following uh, your PhD. How did you kind of decide to continue into research and um, kind of make that pivot into um working at NIDA, right, which was the next kind of major step. That's the next step. <laughs> so I mentioned already I did a rotation with Dr. Yuvin Shaham during my early graduate career. And he was also on my thesis committee and had really mm. great input. And he is really one of the pioneers in modeling and in, in developing new models of addiction and preclinical models, or models, rat models in particular, um, many of which have been translated to mice, but uh, primarily rat models. And at the time it was, there was a really exciting thing happening in neuroscience. And that was towards the end of my graduate career, there was the first study using 
optogenetics to manipulate brain activity, which directly altered behavior and sort of basic models of reward learning. And it was all the rage, but not a lot of labs were doing it. NIDA being an intramural institute had the funding to buy the lasers and <laughs> the equipment that was necessary at the time, which was all very expensive. Mm-hmm. In particular, there were these yellow lasers that were, uh, <laughs> for some reason, like um, much more expensive than the one. So the yellow lasers, as you know, were to activate inhibitory opsins to uh, inhibit endogenous activity in the brain to really show a causal role in behavior. And those, for some reason, were very expensive. So it was, in a sense, there was a lot of like cost prohibitive um, uh, issues that were getting in the way of, of, of researchers accessing uh, mm-hmm. uh, these tools in order to address the research question. So I think it was a really unique opportunity at the time to use optogenetics to probe the involvement of an established circuitry in driving relapse to palatable food seeking. So when Yavin said, well, you should come over and work with us and use this nifty new tool, you'll be the first one at NIDA that's doing this. Um, You can combine it with your, your in vivo electrophysiology. We can really characterize how these tools work and we can move them into these models. And I, it's really hard to turn that down, right? It was yeah. it was right there. I was exploring all of these other things to do. And I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do other. I know I, I felt like I needed a break from bench science and running experiments in and out. I developed a rat allergy also, I should mention. Oh, yeah. That was a big part of like, how am I gonna keep doing this? Yeah. I I wanted to take that break, but I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And anything that I wanted to do. I had missed the application cycle for. So I thought, well, why don't I go just this postdoc and see where it goes? I can always apply next cycle to some of these other opportunities if that's what I want to do. It was easy because NIDA, as you know, is just across town in Baltimore. So I didn't have to move my life. Um, I did end up moving my life closer, but (laughs) (laughs) it's another story. (laughs) I really thought what a cool opportunity. And it was with people I knew and trusted and we're already invested in my training. Really great. Another really great environment to step into. Mm-hmm. It seemed like win, win, win all around. So that is how I navigated that transition. Great. Yeah. It seems like you have, you're able to find, um, use your kind of good networks um, to be able to find also really um, supportive environments um, to do research that's interesting to you. I think that's, good that you have a good eye for those kinds of things (laughs) I think it's advice I do try and thank you that's a really nice compliment it's (laughs) something I think is so important to graduate and postdoctoral training is to find that environment where you can thrive I've been really lucky to have those positive experiences and be able to model them in my own lab Mm -hmm. and I wish it was this way for everyone and I wish it was a priority for everyone and it's something yeah. that's really important to me. So thank you for yeah. noticing that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm excited to be able to talk to you more about your role as, you know, being a director of a program and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so 
So, but at this point in, in your career story, um, so right, you have decided to join um, uh, Dr. Uh, Yavin Shaham's lab. Um, you were enticed by this exciting project of um, starting to use these new tools in the field um, and combine it with your expertise. And so how, what was kind of your um, main then postdoc projects and how did you kind of take those projects and um, you know, transition into you establishing uh, your new lab? Sure. I that's a lot, lot of loaded questions. So yeah, you I can take it piece by piece. Really, <laughs> I'll just keep, keep telling the story. Yeah. I started on this project where, as many people probably know, that work in this field requires some downtime. So you can inject these animals um, with constructs that then allow them to express in specific populations of neurons these light-sensitive proteins. Mm -hmm. And it takes some time for the expression of those constructs. So I sort of started doing that in piloting all of it in some small pieces, some for validation experiments and some for piloting the behavioral experiments. And there are going to be a lot of technical challenges hooking, hooking the animals up and getting them to press levers for food and then to test them by you know, delivering light into the brain and trying to observe some change in behavior in a very you know, one-off uh, test session. So a lot of it was technical troubleshooting and yet there was this downtime that was built into these experiments and a unique opportunity came along where NIH was piloting this program for early independent scientists. And it was the first time they had piloted this program and it was very informal application process. It wasn't even clear what the mechanism was, but the idea was to put an idea for a independent research program mm -hmm. down on the page. It was wow. only three pages at the time. <laughs> it was not a long application. I had a bit of downtime waiting for this viral expression. And so, you know, I've been really influenced at the time by some work coming out of the University of Michigan, Terry Robinson's group, looking at individual differences in a sign and goal tracking model that were predictive of addiction vulnerability phenotypes. And in thinking about my work from graduate school and some of our findings and um, attention-driven learning and signaling in those, in those amygdala nuclei, and I sort of bundled it all up and put it on the page and sent it off and then continued with my postdoc experiments. And I worked with a really great group of people at NIDA who apply, who were experts in other techniques, slice electrophysiology, uh, immunohistochemistry, and um, I really was in charge of spearheading the electrophysiology and the behavioral model. And we sort of pulled that all together and identified a causal role of medial prefrontal cortex and relapse to palatable food seeking induced by stressful stimuli and um, uh, the food reward itself. So pellet prime induced reinstatement. And these two findings were not surprising. Uh, they're actually well established with other techniques, and this was important for validating 
the approach. Mm -hmm. And so it was exciting to be a part of a, a technically exciting project that wasn't conceptually very innovative. Yeah. And it gave me a lot of time to hone my technical skills and to think conceptually on stuff that I was really interested in doing in the future. Mm -hmm. And so in the, you know, all the while, this is sort of a slow process. You apply to a grant, you, never, you don't hear back for a really long time, but I, yeah. I heard back and they said, hey, why don't you come down to main campus and interview for this position? And we were all shocked. It was wow. an NIH-wide call. I have no idea how many applications they had because it was such an early program, but I was, I felt really excited about this opportunity. I went down to NIH main campus and I presented some of my thesis work, some of the stuff I've been working on in my vision moving forward. And I'll actually never forget just a little anecdotal story. I practiced <laughs> this talk in a lab meeting and I was really prepared and it went pretty well. And I got my hummus and chocolate at the end, which is sort of classic <laughs> after you present That's um, cute. In a lab meeting. <laughs> yeah. Got my reward and I felt really validated that it went so well. And I went down uh, to NIH and I got nervous. I had sort of a freezing moment in, as I presented for this really important the most important <laughs> talk of my life. And <laughs> it was a funny feeling. I had never happened to me before because I did always go prepared for my talks. And I guess I didn't practice enough or think carefully enough about the, uh, about the moment and mm. froze. And I remember that feeling scanning the room, looking for that person that's going like this. Yes. The head looking for them somewhere <laughs> desperately. <laughs> We yeah, joke a lot about that kind together. of person in our lives. <laughs> I'm that person now because that saved me. Yeah. That saved me. There were, you know, there were people like this. A lot of people, <laughs> because I was looking for the people going, okay. <laughs> and when I did, I said, you got to pull it together, Donna, and give it like you know how to give it. And so it started off very poorly. And I thought, oh, I botched this. You know, there's no way. But, you know, I came together and all I had to do was talk about my own data. So it gets easier. But yeah. that initial shock of this is a really important thing that's happening. Anyway, we overcame it and, and I was lucky <laughs> to get that position. Actually, I couldn't believe it after that experience, but <laughs> it was a weird opportunity. And I, we had no idea what was coming or what that looks like, but it was an independent position where I had an opportunity to hire some people and have my wow. own budget and start my own research um, within a year, really, of, of graduating with my PhD. So I had sort wow. of this abbreviated postdoc <laughs> position, but I was still in the same branch as mm -hmm. my postdoc mentor. So that was how it was set up. And I, I still had a lot of support and a great environment to be able to start my lab. Yeah. Wow. That's a really interesting. I um, How did that kind of feel at those first? How long was that kind of, I guess, grant or position? And how did you kind of feel as you were <laughs> fresh out of grad school and to some, ex <laughs> some extent um, kind of really setting up and even like reviewing a budget. Like I've never had to do that, you know? What is that kind of feeling like um, at, at that moment? Scary, I think yeah. obviously is the answer. <laughs> I, I think I was really excited to be offered the opportunity. I strangely enough, was starting a family at the same time I was starting a lab. So really challenging in terms of balancing those two. Yeah. On the professional side, I felt supported. We had great administrative systems to support 
creating budgets. The NIH works pretty differently in how the funding is determined. You know, it's based on the fiscal year and Congress and all of these sort of things that are really not issues when starting a lab outside in Mm. in the extramural world. So I really had to plan a year out at a time and that made it a little bit easier, I think. And as far as hiring people, it's hard to know when you're hiring the right people or not. (laughs) I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. Uh, And I've been really lucky to work with such incredible people throughout through the years. And I am careful about hiring, I think. I think it's worthwhile to hire probably more people than you think you need. At least in my line of work, there's there's certain things operationally that are costly, but once you're set up, it's not you know, terribly expensive. It's obviously, you know, budgeting for people is the the part that is most important. And but investing in people is something that can be so fruitful. And I really like thinking about it from the mentoring perspective as well and how you meet the needs of each person. It may not be that you're so perfectly aligned necessarily or have the same style, but how can you work to each person's strengths to carry like a common goal, research goal forward and that's something that I think was the most valuable thing that I learned starting my lab in this very protected environment where I had essentially three years, but they, you could extend it up to five years. I ended up staying for four years before I applied for extramural positions because it was a non-tenure track position and mm-hmm. uh, there were more opportunities to get on a tenure track <laughs> in the extramural world than with yes. a single institute. Yeah. So that was the route that I pursued at the time. Great. And so how did you go about kind of um, choosing University of Maryland, returning back to, you know, your grad program? Um, how was that feeling, I guess, interviewing at somewhere that you also did graduate school? Yeah, another anecdotal or funny story. I was pregnant with my second <laughs> child, 38 and a half weeks pregnant when I interviewed. Wow. I really viewed it as practice. So it was a year ahead. I think I was in my third year of my position. Mm. And it was a year ahead when I needed to apply. I had a lot of colleagues that were on this K99 R00 yeah. job um, search and at the time, it was a tricky job market, and a lot of people were needing that practice year. Um, and so I was going out for that practice run. And I thought it was going to be the classic sitcom moment, getting up there 38 and a half weeks pregnant, <laughs> and giving a <laughs> seminar, which it wasn't. We got through the day. And I thought, oh, this is maybe not such great optics, you know, like, <laughs> family woman looking for a job, but it was already a place that was intellectually invested in me. Mm -hmm. It was a department I came from. There also was big, big shoes to fill and that, you know, my former PhD mentor was a part of that department and um, he had moved Mm -hmm. subsequently. And so there was there a conceptual void when he left. And I think that that was something they really wanted to see filled. And it was, so it was a really, I I talk about this a lot with people. It's a rare story that I have. It's, you know, I think probably pretty annoying to listen to, 
<laughs> but what I tell people a lot of times is fit, how important, whether it's mentor mentee fit, whether it's finding the fit for your research in a department and in a culture, these are the things that are so important regardless of what your path looks like. Mm-hmm. And I've been really fortunate too. I knew it was just going to be a supportive environment. And so again, it's hard when you have a supportive environment and a great opportunity to um, decline that that option if presented. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was the transition there. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, as graduate students and, you know, we make a same mistake, I guess, as postdocs too, of joining based off of the research interest alone and not taking into consideration, um, you know, personalities or just group dynamics and everything like that. And I think that's, those are factors that are going to make you want to um, come in daily and stay, um, stay long-term in a position and stuff like that. And just like um, feel and be successful. So I think that's super important to kind of highlight Um so um, when you returned to University of Maryland, um, you know, how did you kind of, um, what were kind of, I guess, some key components that you felt has been able to like allow you to, you know, continue your research? What was, what's kind of, I guess, some good advice for people initially starting their own labs that um, you've kind of learned from your experience? Sure. So I had established an independent research program on a small scale at NIDA. And a lot of the building the lab was complete when I started my assistant professor tenure track position in Maryland. So it's a different story, certainly in starting than most people have where they have an empty space mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're looking at it and envisioning what it's what's the optimal space configuration. I will mention, because I had an operation already, the easiest thing for us was to roll it into a space that was not necessarily optimal for the type of work that we do. So there's like a lot of wet lab space, we're behavioral Mm -hmm. neuroscience lab, and we have these giant (laughs) boxes on racks for rats to go in and spend hours at a time, and all of this other equipment to run the behavioral procedures and equipment we need to roll in in order to (laughs) measure cells from the brain. And so a lot of, I wanted to keep going. I didn't want to stop. I would say that this is something maybe I'm just learning is that it is important actually to pause, to stop sometimes to survey the data to really spend time delving deeply. We can't just keep running, 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 running all the time Um, to imagine spaces if they need to be renovated. Now, that said, I think it's, you could really spend a lot of time envisioning what the perfect space looks like. And then there's going to be these institutional barriers to actually achieving that vision. (laughs) And yes, it's going to be good for the long term, but there are going to be a lot of things that are out of your control in the meantime. And so starting up can be harder if you want a very specific space. Mm-hmm. And we have been operating it in a suboptimal space for a long time. <laughs> and I, I don't really, really get in the way, to be honest. Like it hasn't so far. I mean, I'm not in there in small yeah. spaces doing the work <laughs> anymore, but 
I used to be, you know, back in the old days, cramped up in some of these same spaces. And <laughs> I do remember it. I mean, there's definitely compromises that are made. And probably yeah. the, the excellent team I work with is like, renovate the space. <laughs> but, um, where, where we are is that, you know, we, we rolled the rolled the rigs and the behavioral boxes in and we kept running. We had a protocol in place. Another great thing to do before you arrive, if possible, mm. and being aware of how long those protocols are going to allow you to operate. Like when's the optimal time to apply and make sure that you can yeah. start when you have your operation together, but you don't do it so early that you time out earlier. Things like this, just being aware of some of the institutional processes that just creep up fairly regularly and just asking questions, finding allies in the department, yeah. knowing who, finding out who to contact for specific things, spreading out your asks across your colleagues. It's people want to help you. They feel validated and rewarded to, to help you navigate being a new faculty member or in a new department position, regardless of, of where you are. It's okay to ask questions and sort of spread it out and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to figure it all out. It's not all on you to figure everything out. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. Um, so how did you kind of transform that like initial um, grant and those like initial years um, of um, being a PI in an intramural institute, now an extramural to build your research program? And I guess kind of getting more into the specifics of the type of research questions you're answering now. Sure. I recruited an amazing team of women scientists to start my lab. And we had a really great camaraderie and interaction and everyone was willing to take risk and to run pilot experiments to generate preliminary data for that first R01 grant. And as we probably alluded to earlier in the conversation or in the introduction, we study individual differences in uh, reward processing in the brain, motivational um, processes in the brain, and how they are relevant for relapse vulnerability phenotypes. And so we're combining sort of what I did in grad school, approaches we use there as far as um, behavioral approaches using Pavlovian conditioning to screen animals to determine whether they are more um, responsive to cues predictive of reward or whether they are more driven by the current reward and its value, current value. And by having sort of a high through, throughput process to identify differences that are relevant for um, learning about drug cues, cues that are predictive of um, drug availability that are that are predictive of um, drug reward. These are the questions that really drive the research in the lab. Mm -hmm. And so we use this existing sign and goal tracking model, which was really been around for more than half a century, but was brought into modern addiction neuroscience by um, Artumi and um, by Terry Robinson and the Michigan group. They're the ones that really linked this sign and goal tracking model to uh, distinct relapse vulnerabilities. And 
the, you know, starting by observing behavior and thinking about what brain systems we know are important for regulating those behaviors, we can derive predictions about how individuals may use the brain's, you know, in some ways, highly redundant <laughs> reward yeah. circuitry, at least on the face of it. Yeah. There's so much, you look at the reward map and it just keeps expanding and expanding over time. Exactly. <laughs> you know, all these brain yeah. areas that care about reward. Well, they so are serving really distinct functions, but yeah. I thought, well, individual variability may explain why there's so much redundancy in the way in which um, very specific circuits are engaged to encode specific facets of associative learning, a specific associative construct may help to explain why there is so much on the face of it redundancy. And so using you know, measurement tools and manipulation tools, we essentially set out to ask what was a simple question, which is whether amygdala projections to striatal and cortical regions may explain sign tracking and goal tracking differences before drug experience. Hmm. And um, this is an interesting question because it had been established that sign tracking animals um, who attend to signs or signals, the cues, that are predictive of rewards, sort of independent of what the reward value is, this sign tracking was associated with a heightened cue-induced cocaine relapse. So drug cues associated with cocaine then triggered a stronger drug-seeking response in the absence of the drug itself. Compared to goal trackers, goal trackers are going over and look, looking for the reward right away when the cue comes on. Mm -hmm. They are more sensitive to the current value of that outcome. So they're sensitive okay. to devaluation of that outcome. If you make, you know, pair that food with illness or you sate them on the food, they're not going to respond to cues. Whereas okay. sign trackers respond a lot. So this was an interesting behavioral finding. And it was one that really drove a lot of predictions um, for how these animals are engaging these amygdala cortical and striatal pathways to drive their behavior, which differed in its flexibility before drug experience. And that was what we set out to do is in vivo recording. We proposed to combine um, optogenetics with in vivo recording to probe specific activity and specific projections in these awake behaving animals, sign tracking and goal trackers. Um, we proposed to um, manipulate those specific circuitry using human genetic tools and determine sort of how these individuals are engaging those circuits to solve simple associative learning problems before drug experience. So basically just characterizing, you know, these two circuits coming from a common yeah. uh, associative hub, the baselateral amygdala, and trying to understand before drugs come on board, what is sort of the baseline mechanisms driving motivated behavior in these animals, learning and motivated behavior in these animals. And we had really specific predictions like amygdala striatal is sign tracking and amygdala cortical is goal tracking. And it's all going to be encoded in these two distinct pathways. And in the last five or six years, we've learned that is not how it works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> animals are using the same circuitry to encode different things. Hmm. So this was in a really exciting finding where, you know, sign trackers are using amygdala striatal projections to encode sort of stimulus response go, mm -hmm. see a stimulus go right. uh, type of behavior. Whereas goal trackers were actually using this projection to guide stimulus outcome responding mm -hmm. such that if you devalue the outcome, they stop going. 
So if you take the circuit out in sign trackers, they become more flexible. And if you take it out in goal trackers, they become less flexible. And this was really exciting because it wasn't distinct circuitry that was driving these behaviors. Instead, it was the same circuitry encoding different information. So the content of the associative information is, is actually different. So, you know, we've been in, attempting to then measure now different brain signals to find evidence for that differential encoding. And we started out by using in vivo electrophysiology, and we have some ongoing work um, doing that, recording from, you know, cortical, striatal, amygdala, striatal projections. Mm-hmm. And we're really excited to see that to come to. It's a really challenging approach uh, as yeah. far as the analysis <laughs> pipeline. And um, something that we've run into since then that has a more streamlined analysis pipeline is using fiber photometry to measure mm-hmm. fluorescent sensor activity. In particular, we've been, um, even though I didn't want to touch dopamine again with a 10-foot pole <laughs> after that experience I told you about in grad school where first it worked and then it didn't, these dopamine sensors are are incredible. We use the GrabDA tools with collaborator Yulong Lee who developed them. They're really incredible um, tools. And we've been able to measure dopamine signals, not only in areas classically you think these signals are measured using like classic techniques like voltammetry and Nichols Commons, but we were able to uh, go to areas where you don't, we, we know dopamine signaling is important, but we haven't really characterized how yeah. dopamine signals look in, in basic reward learning tasks. And so we, we, we recorded these fluorescent dopamine signals, a very talented graduate student, it's of Gawali, um, met, wanted to put a, a dopamine sensor and a probe down into the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. Wow, yeah. And I said, absolutely, let's give it a try the <laughs> pandemic. And I thought, what a neat, what a neat idea. I don't know if we're going to see anything, but, you know, sort of like that moment where Jeff was telling me, I don't know about recording <laughs> dopamine. And it was incredible. And like, we see these signals that look very similar to, um, dopamine signals in the striatum as it relates to sign tracking and goal tracking differences where uh, the sign trackers really show sort of a heightened cue evoke dopamine signal um, compared to the goal trackers. And then we do see evidence for reward prediction error signaling. So circling back wow. to like thesis work, right? Just characterizing these basic systems where we do see bidirectional prediction error signaling in goal trackers, mm-hmm. but not a lot of evidence for bi-directional um, dopamine signaling in the BNST for sign trackers. And this mm-hmm. was like really neat to see. I actually don't know if that's true in the striatum um, because we haven't probed it uh, as far as the directionality, the ability to encode this information, you know, about reward delivery and reward omission um, in this bi-directional fashion. So open questions, you know, really exciting questions, new technology. Um, Another really talented graduate student, Sam Bacharach, was measuring dopamine signals in the nucleus accumbens and manipulating the VTA into cannabinoid system in collaboration mm-hmm. with, with Joe Cheer, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. um, uh, who's also in the department, uh, as you know. And, and it's been a phenomenal collaboration using these tools to take our research questions forward. And um, so these are two studies that are you know, soon to hit the presses where we're really um excited about the direction these tools have taken us yeah and um i think it's been exciting i think your original question was how do you get from the original r01 idea to where you are now it's truly a team of highly motivated people doing work that is extremely slow mm-hmm. um it is particularly tricky because we in addition to 
wanting to look at individual differences in sign and goal trackers and manipulate, right? You have things like viral controls you have to do and maybe agonist controls that you have to do. Um, For each sign tracking, goal tracking group, there's also intermediates I'll mention. Um, They look a lot like goal trackers. So we we tend to to work with all rats and and, um, bring those two groups together to make the comparison to sign trackers. Mm. But it's slow work. We also look at sex differences. Yeah, it's a lot of factors. (laughs) That's the slower piece, right? Like we find this tracking variability and it's like, well, there's still variability in this group. Yeah. Can it be explained by males and, you know, sex differences differences between males and females? And oftentimes it can. Hmm. And so, you know, round after round, (laughs) people are patiently chipping away at these questions. And I think the brain measurement tools really help so much in guiding us there. Yeah. Because we can see, we can, if we measure from the beginning, we can see whether the difference is driven more by tracking, more by sex differences, or perhaps an interaction of these factors. And then we can get a little more targeted in mm-hmm. how we go about asking the question. And yeah. it can be a little bit less laborious because I think I'm so grateful for the team and how incredibly hard they work to fill out all these groups and generate you know primary data for grants to to ask questions that we can um present you know in papers and publications uh it takes years all of these projects take years and a lot of collaboration between people in the lab to get mm-hmm. them to keep them moving and i think the thing that i've learned is um to really rely on those brain measurement techniques yeah. to guide the um approach like how yeah. we're going to focus the question in particular for graduate students, how we focus yeah. this question so you can get yeah. this done yeah. in <laughs> five years or less, right? Yeah. That's, that's the tricky part. And I also emphasize the need to use the behavior as a guide mm-hmm. and to really characterize carefully the behavioral differences before deciding you know where you want to target in the brain how you want to manipulate the brain or how you what you want to measure yeah i think using that sort of approach that's behavior first can really be very powerful and it's one that you know i think this is a broken record message you see a lot on twitter but uh we can't lose sight of behavior guided neuroscience research yeah yeah no that's very true um i guess i kind of have a couple questions like general about um the research you kind of highlighted just now um so do you think i guess like one part i guess is me thinking of you know if maybe at least with the circuits or regions that you're looking at um if goals and sign trackers are um, using them using both but in different ways is it maybe how um like they're modulated by um like right like these these neuromodulators of like dopamine how you said those are seeing differences within like the bnst if that could be um right how these like circuits of um the amygdala uh from the cortex versus the nucleus accumbens is that kind of how you're looking at it now it's the circuits are necessary and they're like altered by some other inputs that are coming in in yeah in the amygdala it's the synergy, it's the synergy between <laughs> yeah. systems absolutely yeah. hit the nail on the head and i am a systems like behavioral neuroscientist yeah. i'm just thinking about this projects to this turn it off yeah. and this will happen type of predictions but yeah 
the more we have the tools to probe specific cell types, the more exciting or specific projections, the more exciting it, it is to generate predictions. Yeah. So I think, yes, where we're going with this is to essentially look at the convergence of midbrain dopamine projections to the striatum and amygdala projections mm. or potentially cortical projections to the striatum and understanding mm. how they synergize. We know that there's these established differences in dopamine signaling in these animals. You can also make predictions, as you know, about how dopamine is acting in the striatum based on yeah. its action in D1 and D2, median spine yeah. neurons and the complexity there. But it's really exciting because I'm starting to think much more carefully about those postsynaptic effects. And, you know, we're combining RNA scope now um, to sort of characterize how um, these animals may be activating specific pre and postsynaptic targets to mm -hmm. modulate entirely different effects in behavioral wow. flexibility before drug experience. And then how drugs come on board and then, you know, change that yeah. if I can, if I may, from the early 2000s, you know, bring in the hijack. Those, I, those I still use that phrase. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a good one, I think. Um, it, it's definitely got like that emotional element, right? Exactly. Like it gets, gets people excited about, about the type of work that we do. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, so I'm thinking a lot more, you know, talented graduate student currently in the lab, Cassie Staff, Catherine Staff, who is working on, um, initially wanted to look at an established projection orbital frontal to dorsal medial striatal mm -hmm. projections and understanding cannabinoid regulation mm -hmm. of flexibility differences, because as I mentioned, the signable tracker showed differences in behavioral flexibility. And right. we thought it was going to be all OFC to um, dorsal medial striatum, and she does the classic pharmacology, and it is it couldn't be. There's no explanation for how it could be, and so we have to get in there with slicey fizz, with RNA scope, mm. and probe some alternatives like the inhibitory interneurons, parvovirin expressing interneurons in the dorsal medial striatum to better understand, yeah. um, like, do they express cannabinoid receptors yeah. in our hands and the rat? Um, are they regulated by um, endocannabinoids? And is that what's driving the, the sex differences in behavioral flexibility that she's observing? And it's, mm -hmm. you know, I love the idea of getting more targeted. Like I've been watching for a decade, people get more and more targeted. And I always claim, well, we don't have the tools. We don't have the tools, but we have the tools now. Yeah. yeah. And it's an exciting new decade for us to get a little yeah. bit more mechanistic, but never lose sight of yeah. behavioral differences, the psychological differences, yeah. the circuit specific differences in, in, in associative encoding. These mm -hmm. are things that are driving the research forward now. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds really interesting. I'm excited to see your uh, work that's going to be published in the upcoming future. Um, I guess um, I kind of wanted to also touch on, um, you know, your role in um, the program in neuroscience um, at UMB. Um, if you wanted to maybe talk about things that you're kind of excited to, you know, you're kind of, I don't know fully what that role is about, so I'd love to kind of hear more about it and what you're excited to kind of do in this role. Absolutely. It's an opportunity, again, I had trouble saying no to. I was a pin student. <laughs> this is the program I came Yeah. From. My current colleagues were my professors. You know, there's, I think, <laughs> some interesting and unique um, challenges to being in the same environment um, as someone directing a program as you know, were previously. There's a lot of history that comes with that. I think 
I hope someone can explain what the job is exactly to me. I think I will <laughs> learn on the job. I have some general yeah. ideas about the importance of, of recruiting and um, uh, importantly retaining students in our yeah. in our program, making sure we uh, serve those students the best we can and really foster a sense of belonging. I think those are important roles. And then, you know, we, we run the qualifying exam and, um, you know, several other other um, big annual traditions sort of yeah. guiding students through the program. And I think this, that there are several unique challenges. One is that our program has really grown in size. Right. And so... I'm really looking forward to coming up with ways to check in with students um, and make sure that, you know, the program is meeting their needs and that we are doing the best we can to retain them in STEM fields moving forward. I think I've been really moved by a number of seminars we've had recently where research is presented where the really the best indicator of retention in STEM is students having a, a sense that they belong in academia or in a research setting. Mm-hmm. And that's something I want to really foster and focus on. I felt that way as a graduate student. I think it was really the supportive environments that I was in as a graduate student, a postdoc, that I really felt a valued part of the team that I was an intellectually invested member in the type of science that I was doing. And while, you know, it felt like an island sometimes to be doing the type of research I was doing in graduate school, like there weren't a lot of people doing that type of work. We now have a huge network of people doing this type of work um, in our department and across the program in neuroscience. And so I think it's going to be even easier to enhance that sense of belonging for students in, in my subfield, but really identifying in other subfields of neuroscience how to nurture that for students in our program and not just students, postdocs too, obviously are um, such an important part of the way our institution operates. (laughs) And we need to make sure that we're really reaching all students. So it's a unique leadership opportunity to be able to influence that, not just on the program and neuroscience level, but sort of more broadly um, working with the experts and, 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 helping training be a positive experience for people. Mm-hmm. I think we're up against a lot of challenges in academia to um, really prove to our trainees that this is a, a viable option, a um, an option that will be rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like industry is going to pay out a lot better. And, yeah. There, you know, there's a lot of conversation around that. And yeah. Industry has been villainized for a long time by academia. And now I think that it's good. It's gone the other way around. And yeah. I just want to make sure it's a fair presentation that yeah. for, for some, it really is a worthwhile endeavor. And when it's not, we need to support our students and, and finding where they, you know, helping them find where they land. And there's a lot of resources already in place at my institute to do that. And I mm. am excited to work more directly and learn so much more about those resources and make sure students have are aware of them and postdocs are aware of them, gain access to them. And I think that's a big part of it is just networking to learn all the opportunities yeah. so that I can point people in the right direction. And 
hope that, you know, they get as excited as I felt as a <clears throat> graduate student you know, yeah. to, to pursue those next stages. But it's daunting when you're in a position for four or five years and you have to make that change. It feels like such a big commitment. And mm -hmm. I think people see choosing between academic and anything else as this binary decision that's going to set the path yeah. for the rest of their lives. And maybe it is, yeah. but yeah. it doesn't have to be right. Like you're not closing a door by exploring an opportunity. I know plenty of people that have been in industry and come back to academia or been in academia for a while and gone to industry. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many, it's flexible, it's flexible. Mm -hmm. And I think people understanding that can feel a little less pressure in making these decisions or exploring opportunities and um, doing what's really best for them. But trying to make the most of the graduate experience, postdoc experience, so that it is something people want to pursue. Yeah, yeah. No, I think those are um, very admirable uh, goals to have for that kind of position and important um, for all types of trainees to feel included. Um, Great. Um, well, I think we're finishing up the interview uh, now that we've gone through all these different stages of your career. Um, something we always like to ask at the end is, you know, what you like to do uh, for fun outside of the lab. Yeah, parenting is a big one. <laughs> I have uh, an incredible family, a husband and two kids. They're rounding up 11 and nine oh. and they're really active kids engaged in lots of activities and you know despite i think moms everywhere complaining about the you know, shuttling and carpooling to this and that i actually really enjoy that i really like being out on the sidelines at the sporting events and mm -hmm. at the farm watching the riding and um you know i, I bring the dog along and mm -hmm. and you know the it's nice to spend time. It's nice to have dedicated time to spend as a family. And we all go together, um, load into the car and go and spend this time together. We also restored a 1970 foot Boston Whaler sport. And wow. during the pandemic, yeah. So that was a fun project. And we do get to enjoy that going out on the water. And cool. you know, we live in an we live in Annapolis, which is this beautiful area to feel like you have, you're living sort of that vacation life sometimes being able to go out on the water and crab and fish. And so those are the things that we do. We spend a lot of time with family and, and that's, that's pretty much how I spend my time outside of the lab these days. That question would have been, you know, the answer would have been really different in a different <laughs> chapter of life, but Keeps yeah. Busy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to interview um, and speak to all of the people from Stories of Wind. Great. Thank you so much. It's a really great um, initiative that you guys have. And I really enjoyed the other podcasts and it's an honor to be a part of it. So thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm.